Welcome to this podcast called Curious About Recovery. I am Kirsten Honeyball. I am your host. And in this podcast, I will be diving deep into eating disorders, which are complex and challenging to navigate. So whether you're a sufferer, a professional, a family or loved one of a sufferer, you can join me as I get curious by interviewing professionals, chatting to eating disorder survivors and sharing my personal experience with an eating disorder so that you can better understand various perspectives remove stigma, hear inspiring testimonies, and simply get curious about all things eating disorder related. I would like to put out a trigger warning. These episodes explore the topic of eating disorders and some content may be triggering to listeners. Topics explored may mention, but are not limited to, trauma, diets, food and body types, suicide, mental illness, substance use, self-harm, violence, gender identification topics, and more. Please take care before listening to any episodes. It's important to note that this podcast is not aimed to diagnose, treat, or cure any form of mental illness and should not be seen as a replacement for treatment of eating disorders. Everything said here is expressed in relation to personal and professional opinions and listeners should be encouraged to view these episodes as an open-minded exploration of various possibilities and perspective rather than hard facts and solutions. Please take what applies or resonates with you and leave the rest. And if you're struggling with an eating disorder, don't hesitate to reach out to me at Kirsten at kirstenhoneyball.co.za. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. It's really amazing to have owner of Food Freedom Therapy here, Cherie Miller. Her team specializes in helping women and men make peace with food in their bodies. Before starting Food Freedom, she worked as a therapist at Center for Discovery, an outpatient eating disorder clinic in Addison, Texas. She was a counselor at the Eating Disorder Center of Denver's Connections House and was a support group leader and volunteer at the Eating Disorder Foundation, EDF, in Denver. She's also currently working on receiving her Certified Eating Disorder Specialist certification. So she's an eating disorder specialist and coach specializing in adult eating disorders, including anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, orthorexia, OSFED, and disordered eating all along the spectrum. She also offers faith-based Christian counseling to those who are seeking a Christian perspective in their eating disorder recovery. She has 15 years of experience as an eating disorder mentor, speaker, educator, and advocate, and is a member of the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals and the Association for Size Diversity and Health. She loves speaking on topics related to food and body freedom. So it's so lovely to have you here on the podcast. I'm really, really appreciative of you stepping up to help create awareness and education and just be a voice for those people who don't have a voice so that we can start normalizing the idea of seeking help for mental health issues such as eating disorders. So I would love to know a little bit more about the work you do, how you kind of got into it, and what really motivates you to work in the specialty field of eating disorders. Like a lot of people who work in the eating disorder field, though not everybody, I have my own story of really struggling with my body image and with food, and I had my own eating disorder. And I knew when I started recovery, it was actually part of the reason I wanted to get well, is I thought, I want to help other people someday. Um, and so it did take me a while to get there. I did a 10-year career in marketing before I went back to school and got my 
master's degree in counseling. And so I'm here now, which is a good thing. I, it gave me time to grow up a little bit <laughs> and continue my healing. Um, but I'm, I am very excited to be able to do this work that I love now and that I'm so passionate about. And it's just so rewarding too, to see making a difference in women's lives um, on a day-to-day basis. That's a gift. Not everybody can say that about their work. <laughs> I can totally relate to that. I mean, you know, you as a professional, you're working with people and sometimes they come to you after a session and they're like, you know, you changed my life and you, I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for you. And you kind of sit back and go, wait, is this kind of real? <laughs> you know, one thing you mentioned is, you know, as a professional, it took you some time to get to the space where you felt comfortable enough to start helping people. And I can definitely relate to that. I myself always had this imposter syndrome of, you know, I'm not quite there yet. I haven't quite got it right. Um, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. So how did you kind of overcome those fears and those limitations in your personal life so that you could bring it into your professional space? Yeah, I think a lot of us feel that way. I have some staff for me that are relatively new and they're a lot younger and they're struggling with some of those same things as well. And and I still have those days, um, although, you know, generally I'm in a much better place than I was <laughs> several years ago when I was starting out. So I think a lot of it is just having one awareness and being really aware of any areas that you're still working on and still growing because truly it's not like we arrive. <laughs> we don't get to a place where we're like, I've got it all figured out and now I shall bestow my knowledge. You know, it's like, we've maybe learned a lot, we've grown, but we'll always be in process. And I, I actually think that's a beautiful thing to be able to model for clients as well. Um, especially in the work that I do, I work with a lot of clients who have very perfectionistic temperaments. And so it can be very hard on themselves and just modeling that it's okay to not be perfect and to be in process and growing all the time is I think something that's really important in this work. And the other thing is just having self-compassion for the fact that we are in process, that we never totally have it figured out. We don't, not every day do we feel on top of it. Um, you know, especially those of us who are women who are working, if we have children and family responsibilities, I'm in this sandwich generation where I've got um, parents who are live close to me and, and, and sometimes I need to be there for them as well. So, you know, there can be a lot of demands on us and just recognizing that we are human beings and some days we don't bring our best or we are feeling kind of down or burned out or whatever. Um, and just being able to take care of ourselves in those feelings instead of being critical of ourselves. And so I really value growing. I value learning both as a person as a professional. And I think those are really the most important qualities that anybody can bring is just um, valuing growth, having compassion and recognizing what you do know and the skills that you have, right? Like I tell my staff, I'm like, don't sell yourself short. You may feel like you don't know everything and that's true, but you do know a lot. And many times we do know more than our clients just because we're further along in the journey because we've had the education. So it's like, we always have something to offer. And I think that's really valuable and we shouldn't discount those things that we have to offer. I think what you're saying is so valuable is this idea that we're always in process. We're always, you know, we're never arriving at some magical place in the clouds that suddenly ticks all the boxes. We have to manage ourselves as professionals and, and it paints a really 
compassionate and beautiful picture for a person that's coming into recovery who has this idea that one day they're suddenly not going to have to be human, you know? <laughs> um, and that's, that's not the case. And I, I find a lot of the time, the people that really struggle to, to reach full recovery are the people who are denying themselves their humanity in the process and the ups and downs and the, the complexities and all that. So to hear it from the mouth of a professional who has, is running her own business and is, you know, advocating for eating disorders to hear you say like, it's okay to not be okay as a, as a recovered person. Um, you know, you're speaking a lot about the idea of the people that come in as staff members to your business. So, I mean, I'd love to know more about your business and what it is that you guys do, what, what your team is comprised of, who you help and how it was founded, anything that comes to mind. Yeah, sure. So I started out just as a solo therapist um, a couple years ago. I came back from maternity leave, you know, and as you said in my bio, I have some experience, you know, even before I became a counselor of just doing volunteer work. Uh, when I was living in Denver, there's just an amazing nonprofit up there. They're just doing so many wonderful things. They have a mentorship program. It's kind of like an AA sponsorship where you could, if you're in recovery, you can get connected with somebody who's just a lay person who has gone through recovery themselves and they can be a support and a mentor. Um, I was involved in that and I was leading support groups and speaking at schools and um, just have always had a passion for this, even before I became licensed to actually do counseling work. And so now over the last couple of years, and I, I, I'm assuming some of this is reflective of everything that's just gone on in our world with COVID and everything else, but you know, people have been really struggling with their mental health and most therapists I know are overwhelmed. And that's really what I was finding is I was just having more people needing help than I could possibly get to. And so I was like, well, maybe I need to hire somebody to work for me. And then, you know, I have somebody to refer these people to that I know, I know and trust and all of that. And so it's just been a process since then. It's been a whirlwind. It's just, it's been a little over a year since I hired my first person, Fran, um, who is wonderful. And we're just continuing to grow. And now we have a dietitian on our team who is fabulous because we do a lot of collaboration, as you can imagine, uh, working with disordered eating across the spectrum. Uh, sometimes having a dietitian is very helpful in addressing nutrition side of the, of the equation, which I'm not qualified to do. That is definitely outside my scope. Um, and then we also have a coach on our team who works more with people who are like chronic dieters. Um, so maybe not in a clinical eating disorder needing therapy, but are still struggling with food issues and are really ready to get some help and find some food freedom and, and not be so tied to diet culture and the yo-yo dieting and all of that, that so many of us have been wrapped up in for a long, long time. So do you and your team kind of onboard a client and do an assessment holistically and say, okay, well, this person needs a coach and a dietitian and a therapist, and this person needs a whatever, whatever, and you kind of make that into a package? Or do they come seeking a dietitian or seeking a coach? Or how do you approach that? Yeah, sometimes people know exactly what they're looking for. And they'll say so um, at the outset, and that's usually we'll go ahead and connect them. And then, yes, we always do assessments so we can see if that's a good fit or not. You know, like sometimes people will say they just want coaching. And then when they start working with Lindley, it's a little, it's obvious that they really need something a little more intensive. And so 
if they're not in Texas where we're licensed, we'll try to connect them with a therapist local to their state because we're, we're licensed by state here in the, in the U S. And so, um, you know, because somebody that, that might maybe have like some trauma that needs to be addressed or, you know, has pretty severe depression or anxiety, you know, they really need therapy and not just a coach. Um, so we want to make sure we're connecting them with, with the resources that, that actually need, that they actually need. Yeah, I think it's so important because there's so many different f- layers to the entire recovery process and to have someone at every level is actually sometimes really needed or to to be able to recognize who's needed, you know. Um, I know that you, you work with a bunch of different modalities like CBT, DBT, ACT, um, EXRP, which is one that I know is mostly used for like trauma, if I'm correct. Um, actually, I, you might be thinking of EMDR. Um, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I call this the alphabet soup of <laughs> therapy modalities. It's like all these acronyms. EXRP or I've seen it just ERP, it's exposure response prevention. It has to do with like systematically um, categorizing fears, right? So this is used in OCD as well, or phobias, but it's really useful in eating disorders because there's so much fear surrounding food that it's a process of ranking like what your fears are and then working through those from the least distressing to the most, right? So you take the things that feel most manageable to try to work through, you build some success, and then you work your way up to the more challenging things. So an eating disorder treatment, that looks like we make a list of fear foods, things that clients are afraid to eat, that they have some really rigid food rules around. And then whatever's the least scary for them, we practice eating those things. We might practice them in session, eating together. They might practice at home with a family member and whatever that looks like for them. And then as they get to a place where they're not afraid of that food anymore, then we move on to the next one. Yeah, that's actually so interesting because it's a... I think it's something I've I've heard of before. It's like this hierarchy where you give each thing a rating, and and this approach is is in my perspective such a gentle approach to really, really, really immense fears that a person is experiencing. Like not knowing the difference between someone holding a gun to your head versus putting a certain type of food in front of your in front of your on your plate, from a psychological perspective. And to a lot of the time, what I witness in eating disorder recovery is someone's just told you've just got to do it all at once all in one go and you know sometimes that works for people but then this approach might be a a way more gentler approach for someone who can't do that all in one go kind of thing where they're actually able to go one step at a time and through overcoming a fear of something that's maybe 30% out of 100, then maybe next week they can do something that's 40% out of 100 and it actually eases them in the process, you know. Um, So it's really wonderful to know that that's a a useful and and effective tool for eating disorder recovery in terms of the fear foods. I've also seen that you, you practice CBT, DBT, and ACT. Now, I touched on these kinds of things when I was in my own personal journey and I have an understanding of them. But for those people who are listening to this podcast and don't know what those are and how they can help, would you mind explaining a little bit to me? Oh, for sure. So CBT is one of the most widely used therapy modalities across the board. I mean, it's really applicable to almost almost anything that you can come to therapy with. Um, and it has to do with 
really taking a look at your thinking. And it's based on the premise that our thinking really affects how we feel, right? So if we change our thinking, then we can reduce anxiety, reduce depression, those types of things. So for instance, how I see this show up in eating disorder therapy is we might be telling ourselves really negative things uh, about ourselves, right? Like, so just this week, some of my work with clients, it's like, they're being really mean to themselves, so to speak, like, you know, things that they would never say to another person about like, oh, I'm so stupid, or I'm so lazy, you know, those kinds of things. And it's like, well, no wonder you feel bad. You feel bad about yourself. You, if somebody was sitting next to you saying those things to you, it would destroy your self-esteem. It's the same thing. It's just, you're doing it to yourself in your head. So of course you feel terrible. So, but a lot of times we don't even recognize how we think about things or talk to ourselves because it's just, it's just our normal. And so it's a process of slowing down, using some tools to really notice what your thoughts are. And we call it like putting them on trial, (laughs) like seeing like, are these rational, helpful thoughts? And if they're not, practicing what we call reframing, which is developing a new, more helpful thought that's more realistic, more self-compassionate, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, So CBT is really effective. ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. It seems like the exact opposite of some of the other ones because it's all about accepting some of your thoughts. It's about accepting your emotions. But I find that it's helpful to have both because sometimes like proactively trying to change our thoughts or our feelings isn't helpful. And sometimes I had a therapist that I was seeing way back in the day, liken it to it's like being in quicksand. It's like the more you fight against it, the, the faster you sink. And so sometimes it's just helpful to have acceptance that thoughts that are uncomfortable or emotions that are uncomfortable are a normal part of life. And we can't always make them go away. And honestly, sometimes we shouldn't, right? Because sometimes emotions that are uncomfortable are valuable and are teaching us something or are alerting us to something that's important. And it's not always appropriate to try to make them go away. So I really love the idea of acceptance too. It's, it's based on the philosophy that suffering is part of life and that when we can accept that, we actually have less suffering in our life because so much of our pain results from trying to avoid suffering. And it's like, so true. If you think about like how that shows up with eating disorders, it's, it's, we're trying to, oftentimes we're trying to cope with things in a way that's not super healthy. Like I'm trying to avoid my feelings of stress or loneliness or depression, or, you know, even, even my low self-esteem, you know, I'm trying to soothe that by engaging in these behaviors that are really unhealthy. Right. And we see that show up for people who abuse substances or, you know, do all kinds of things that are really just attempts to not feel pain. Right. And so, so when we can have some acceptance where like suffering is sometimes unavoidable and that's okay, we can get through it without making it go away. Then I find that to be a helpful approach for people a lot of times as well. Then DBT is dialectical behavior therapy. This was actually started for people who have borderline personality disorder, and it's really expanded and become useful for a lot of different populations in the mental health field, one being eating disorders. And it's based on four 
major tenets. One is learning mindfulness. One is learning distress tolerance, kind of that same like learning to accept that pain happens. Um, Emotional regulation. So if you have really intense emotions and you feel overwhelmed by them, how to bring that down to a manageable level and respond to those intense emotions in healthier ways. And then the last one is interpersonal effectiveness. So that really has to do with like how to have healthy relationships with people, how to have good boundaries, how to communicate effectively, those kinds of things. It's really beautiful to just think of this almost like a toolbox of, you know, learning all these things. And whenever something's coming up, you can either take one or two or three of the tools and mix them together and see what's really going to work for you at the time. And the picture that comes to mind as you are speaking is this idea of sitting in a room with a tiger, right? And the tiger's charging at you. And it's like, you you can't close your eyes and pretend the tiger's not there, right? Because it is there. (laughs) But at the same time, you don't want the tiger charging at you. So you kind of got to find a way to slow it down so that it just sits there and doesn't hurt you, you know? So I'm thinking of all of these little pieces of how we can accept that the tiger is in the room, acknowledge it's there, acknowledge that we have to do something about it or maybe get out of the room or whatever, but also not deny the fact that it's there in the first place, but just use these tools, these cognitive of tools, these dialectical tools to be able to just go, how can I slow this down so that I can deal with it? You know, so yeah, it's just a very bright imagery that came to my mind when I was thinking about that. Back to your your company as well, you know, food freedom therapy. Obviously, a lot of people talk about this idea of food freedom. What does that mean to you? Well, it can mean different things to different people. You're right. To me, it means being able to eat freely, without fear, without guilt, shame, anxiety, a lot of the things that we have come to feel about eating or about certain foods. And really just being able to look into your own self and eat according to your own values, your own wants, your own needs, and not relying on external rules about like, don't eat this, don't eat that, eat this, um, you know, don't eat past seven, you know, all these rules and all these diets that tell us like very prescriptively, like this is how you're supposed to eat, you know, and it's like, they contradict each other. So it's so confusing. Um, but most of us, you know, have had periods in our lives where we feel like we've tried everything. Um, and so really just rejecting that idea that somebody outside of us knows what's best for our bodies and that our bodies can't be trusted. Cause that's really the core message of diet culture. I think is that we cannot trust ourselves. Our bodies can't be trusted. And that's just not true. Um, our bodies are not out to to get us or to betray us. Um, if anything, we betrayed our bodies so much of the time by, you know, trying to suppress our hunger or ignoring it or, you know, eating way past what our body needs at that moment and feeling really physically uncomfortable or, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and so it's, it's about building a relationship with, with food and your body that has peace and joy. I love that building a relationship. I once heard this quote and the person said, it's not about getting in control of your food behaviors. It's about forming a relationship with them. And I was just like, wow, that's so, so resonant. You know, and you also say this idea of knowing what your body needs, giving it that thing, honoring it, moving away from rules and rigidity and diet culture. 
But how do you help someone who's coming to you for the first time and they don't know when they're hungry, when they're full, when they, you, you know, there's there's cravings that come out of nowhere that that maybe aren't good for their body or maybe are, um, you know, in extreme forms. And how do you help a person better recognize what their body actually needs and how to honor that? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on where they're coming from and where they're at in that moment in their journey. You know, I, I have clients who come and they're kind of thinking like, maybe I want to make a change, but I'm really scared and I'm not totally ready to give up my, my rules about food and all of this stuff. And then I have people who come and they're just like, I am sick of this. We call it like dieting rock bottom. Like I, I am, I'm done with this. Um, (laughs) you know, and so they're kind of in a different place. Um, but you know, I, I think in generally, one of the things that we find is that even some of the chaotic eating patterns, like, you know, habitual overeating or binge eating is really rooted in dieting. I mean, the research is pretty clear that it's the restriction that causes that, which is a missing piece. What we hear from diet culture and what we tell ourselves is, you know, I don't have any willpower. I, you know, I'm weak or, you know, I'm addicted to food. But once you stop the pattern of restriction and you start feeding your body enough and you start feeding it consistently and you stop telling yourself about all the things you can't have and you let yourself start to enjoy those foods. We call it unconditional permission to eat in the intuitive eating space. Like once you really do that, it's amazing how some of those things heal just in that, right? We think again, oh, I'm addicted to food or I'm an emotional eater. And it's like, really what's typically going on is that there's a lot of restriction. Um, I have a client just recently, she's coming out of that. Like she went through a period of time, which is pretty normal, where it's like you start giving yourself permission to eat those things and you just kind of go like hog wild for a lack of a better way to put it. And it feels really scary because you're like, see, I knew it. All I want are the cookies and the ice cream or whatever, you know, all the things I knew this is why I couldn't do this because this is all I want to eat. And I'm always, I would say, I know this is so hard and it's so scary, but trust the process, trust your body. You will, you will heal those feelings of deprivation that you've had for maybe years. Your body will learn that you're going to let yourself have these things sometimes. And you'll, you'll stop craving this and you're, you'll wake up one day and realize you want a salad or a plate of vegetables or whatever it is. Truly, truly. I think it's such an important thing to recognize because a lot of the time what happens is someone comes into recovery, especially if they've been in heavy, um, in heavy restriction and, and it will happen where they will start to gravitate towards, um, foods that they've restricted in the past, whatever those are, whether they're sugars or carbs or even a certain type of food. Like for me, it was peanuts. Like, I mean, come on. And I couldn't get enough of of peanuts, you know. And um, to understand that that is part of the process. And I think a lot of the time what happens is they get to that point and then they go, you see, I have no willpower. I can't, I can't do this. This is this is never going to end. If this is what normal eating is, I don't want it. And then they regress. They go backwards, you know. And just to move through that that space of fear of it being permanent. You know, we've got to think of the impermanence of every single behavior or every single fluctuation that's going to come on the journey. 
another thing that I really resonated with and, and, and would love to know more about is the idea that you have a Christian faith-based approach to a lot of the work that you do. Now, I am personally a Christian, um, but I never enforce or uh, I, I don't tell people specifically that that's the way that they need to go for their recovery. But I love to connect with people who do give that sort of guidance. Would you like to tell me a little bit more about how the Christian faith is involved in the process of recovery? Sure. And, you know, I'm the same way. If somebody comes to me and they are not a Christian or they are of a different faith, like I definitely work within their own value system. It's never my place nor my desire to like push my own my own values or my own religious views on anybody else. Um, but if somebody does come in and say, you know, I am a Christian and I would like counseling kind of from that perspective and to co- incorporate biblical values and those kinds of things, then I'm happy to do that and able to do that. And what's interesting is that the research on eating disorder treatment is showing that some sort of spirituality element is actually incredibly helpful for recovery, right? So, you know, for me, that looks like a Christian faith-based perspective, but, you know, it doesn't have to, Um, you know, like I said, other types of spirituality have shown to be really helpful. I think there's something just really inherently empowering and hopeful in connecting with something larger than ourselves, right? And from the Christian perspective, you know, having trust in a God that loves us, that wants good for us, is able to help us and heal us through these things. I mean, those are those are powerful beliefs that can propel us through times where we feel really disheartened or we're not sure we can get well um, or we're not not sure that we're loved or cared about, right? You know, like I said, so many of my clients feel terrible about themselves and have really low self-esteem and connecting with the idea that that God loves you and you are valuable. And, you know, I think also just this idea of like, God did not create you to be pretty and thin. Like that is not your value in this world. He has bigger purpose and plans for you. And opening up the idea that we've been distracted by all this obsession with being thin and beautiful and young forever that it's really a distraction from the wider meaning of life. And, you know, of course, that's different for everybody, but connecting with something deeper and more profound than just this obsession with our outward aesthetics, I think is really, it's a really powerful shift. And I think it's important for most people in the eating disorder or disordered eating recovery process. Hmm. I've definitely resonate with the idea that, there is more to the eating disorder that we can understand cognitively. You know, we we need to understand that we are um, we are more than just what goes on in our thinking patterns. Is um, this is just my personal experience? And like I said, I would never I would never say to someone like you have to believe in some kind of spiritual modality or anything. But spirituality can look like just choosing love or joy as a director in the decisions that you make you know it can it can be choosing principles that hold fast with goodness and with clarity and with compassion and integrity and all of those things so you know I've heard before this idea of a a God being the acronym for a good orderly direction just the ability to say what would 
like in the Christian faith and kind of like, what would Jesus do? But in the, in a sense where it's spiritual, it would be, uh, what would someone who loved me want for me, you know, and then do that thing. Um, even if that doesn't have necessarily a deity or any kind of ethereal concept for a person, but but lovely that you can bring that into your your practice because I think when in, personally when you start to work with a person on a spiritual sense, whether it's Christian faith or in, or anything that they bring to the table, you can often see a lot a growth that's a lot faster, you know, uh, and growth that's a lot more durable and changing. Yeah, so we do a lot of like digging deep on that. I'll ask them like if they're if they're not a Christian, I'll say like, well, where is it that you derive your sense of what's true and your sense of what's right and wrong? And we kind of explore that. You know, is it you know how they were raised and their and what their family taught them? Is it is it some more some other sort of religious doctrine, or is it just what feels right in the moment? Right? Like we just we kind of explore that so that I understand a little bit better, and then we can see how that plus the values work we do from ACT, because there's a lot of values work in ACT where we identify like, what are your core values? And we can see how those, those, those tenets of faith or uh, values that they hold, those things are incompatible often with the behaviors and the way that they're spending their time and energy on trying to maintain their bodies or trying to control their food and things like that. Right. So like, for instance, I have a client who identified and she really wanted to travel the world and, and her experience of doing that, she wasn't able to even really fully enjoy it because she was so worried about food and her body. She'd be tired, sometimes almost passing out. She'd be distracted. You know, she just couldn't even be present wherever she was. And so for her, that became a goal of, I want to be able to like travel and like fully be present and enjoy it. And it was so cool to see like towards the end of therapy, she like left for over a month because she was traveling around Europe. And it just made me so happy to see like, here you are, you are living out this value that we talked about months ago, being more important to you than your eating disorder and you worked so hard to get to this place. And here you are living your life out of your own values. And it just, to see the joy and the peace and the freedom that that brought to her was just so, so amazing. That reminds me of a, a therapy modality that I, I heard when I was living in Johannesburg um, about a year ago. And this guy, he, he practices something called Logos therapy. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's basically this idea that in order to recover oneself, whether it's from um, habits, depression, trauma, eating disorders, addiction, anything is this idea of finding something that gives you purpose. You know, and then you say this, this girl, she really, really wanted to travel and she had this motivation of, I can't do this if I'm fainting in the, in the hotel, you know, and I, I, I need to be able to make myself get better if I want to have this experience in my life. And for you, it was, I need to, I really, really want to help people and I can't help people if I'm not working on myself first, you know. Um, so really just an amazing thing that if you, if you don't have any idea or understanding of anything like a God, or even the idea of spirituality seems foreign to you, it's definitely worth thinking, what gives you purpose? What makes you get up in the morning and gives you a smile and gives you joy? And what really brings you this sense of wanting to show up in the world? 
And if you don't have something, how can you start exploring that space for yourself? I absolutely love the fact that you've also got this thing called the Body Image Resilience Program. Would you love to tell me a little bit about that? Yes, yes. And we've been on hold for a while. I'm hoping we'll do another round here pretty soon. But it's it's a body image program that's like a group program that my coach Lindley leads and she's so fabulous. And what I love about it is that it's not about trying to get women to a place where they think, oh, I love my body. I feel beautiful. It's the idea that it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because your body is not is not an extension of who you are. Like it is, it is a tool. It is not your identity, right? So it's like, I've heard the quote and I don't know who originally said the quote. So I apologize for this. Um, but the quote is that our body is not the masterpiece. Our life is, and our body is the paintbrush that allows us to create that masterpiece, right? So it's just a shift away from, this message that we get as women, especially that our value, our worth is very closely tied to, you know, how beautiful we are, how thin we are. I mean, if you think about it, it's really just how fun it is for people to look at, especially men. Right. And just like rejecting that idea of like, no, this is, this is not my priority and it's not my, it's not my identity nor my value. And I've got bigger and more important things. Like we were just kind of talking about, I've got bigger and more important things to do in this world. And um, I just, I love that shift away. Cause we, there is a lot of, in, in some of this space, this focus on everyone is beautiful and your flaws are beautiful. And it's not that that's bad, but for me, it still, still rings a little hollow because it's like, but it's not the point. Like I, my mission is not to convince every woman that she's beautiful. It's if you're beautiful, that can be fun, but not really that important. And you don't need to be beautiful to be a worthy person or to make a difference in this world or to be loved or to love others well. I, I once heard someone say, um, what was it again? They were said, uh, no one ever cared what Mother Teresa looked like in a bikini, <laughs> you know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And this this also speaks to this, I guess, generalized idea that a lot of people have, and it's a very damaging idea that people hold, is that eating disorders are a form of vanity, you know, because we think of this idea that, yes, there might be a motivation of I need to be in a certain body type or shape, and even if it's not anorexia because you know a lot of the time when we're speaking about eating disorders we we tend to gravitate towards uh, people who are in anorexic bodies but I mean I remember one time I was very very depressed and I suddenly got this idea that I was going to gain as much weight as I could so that no one would ever have to love me you know <laughs> which was super super flawed but um recognizing that whatever whatever your brain is telling you like i need a certain body to feel a certain way and that it's not based in vanity and maybe you could just tell me about like the misconceptions in this area yeah i that is one of the stereotypes about eating disorders and along that lines i i like to point out as often as i can that the stereotype of eating disorders being mostly around anorexia is actually, that's also misinformation because the, actually the most common eating disorder is binge eating disorder. It is more common than anorexia and bulimia combined, but we don't hear about it. We don't talk about it much, but it really is very, very common. The other thing is that 
people with eating disorders, only 6% of them are clinically medically underweight. So this stereotype we have of this emaciated, you know, young white girl is really quite off statistically because we see eating disorders across the spectrum of weights. We see it across the spectrum of genders and ethnicities. And the reason I'm passionate about calling that out is because I have so many clients who don't think they're worthy of help or don't recognize like I, I really am sick enough to deserve help because they think, well, I don't, I don't look like that, or I'm not that, you know, and <laughs> I'm always having to do so much like education is like, yeah, but that is actually not the statistic norm of eating disorders. That's just what we see reflected in the media the most often. And so I really like to fight against that stereotype so that everybody knows, like, if you're struggling, if, if this is interfering with your life, if this is making you miserable in any kind of way, your relationship with food and your body, it is a valid thing and you are worthy and deserve help in that period. It's, it's really important that you shared that because I wasn't even aware of the fact that that is a misinformed stereotype. I mean, <laughs> who would think that a stereotype isn't even right? <laughs> you know, like um, in one of your most recent blog posts, you speak about relationships, right? Um, it's also one of my most re- recent blog posts. I speak about this idea of relationships, how how we reflect w- uh, within ourselves is also how we can see that coming out in relationships and our dynamics, whether it's to people, places, things colleagues, work situations, money, um, even ourselves, you know, so how would you help or suggest a person helps connect with their partner or someone who's feeling insecure or shame in their body when it comes to intimacy and relationships? What are your thoughts around this? Yeah, these are hard topics because they feel so incredibly vulnerable. I think the first place to start is usually to build some open and honest communication with your partner. Hopefully that's already there, but if it's not, to start working on that. So you can talk to your partner about how you're feeling, um, if you're feeling insecure, and if they are making comments or doing things that add to you feeling insecure or bad about yourself, you know, you need to to tell them that because you know, there are certain people that are just gonna be like, oh I had no idea. I'm, you know, I'm so sorry I've made you feel that way course, there are going to be partners who are not going to be that kind and receptive. And that's like a whole nother layer. It's like, if your partner is not going to hear you when you say, Hey, please don't do that. That really hurts me. And it hurts my ability to be intimate and feel safe with you. If a partner dismisses that or criticizes or, you know, (laughs) says anything hurtful back on that, you've got a deeper problem in your relationship that needs to be addressed and, and be looked at. But Everybody has a right in their relationship to feel safe, to feel heard, to feel appreciated. You know, and that doesn't mean we ever, we don't ever point out things that we might want our partner to change or work on, but our bodies should not be something that's open for criticism. It's like we, yes, attraction is important, but attraction is about way more than what we look like. And unfortunately, I think men especially have been, um, conditioned by media and pornography to really look at like outward appearance and aesthetics um, and really make a lot of attraction about that. At the same time, that's not all men by any stretch of the imagination. 
I think most men genuinely love their partners for who they are and they're attracted to them, even with body changes. Because the truth is, most of us are going to have body changes, you know, both men and women as we get older, right? But especially women as we go through maybe having children or we have hormonal changes, right? I'm like starting very early, very early menopause at 39. And I started a couple of years ago and it's like, I've had body changes because of that. I've had body changes when I've taken antidepressants. I had body changes after I had babies, right? And if you aren't with a partner who's willing to love you and accept you through all of that, especially when sometimes that's not even stuff you can help, right? Like we cannot change some of that. Then, then there's a problem there because I think, like I said, we all deserve to feel like we're loved and valued unconditionally. And that, you know, some body changes, it doesn't put us in a precarious position with our partner where they're going to ridicule us or cheat on us or, you know, deny us intimacy or whatever. Yeah, I think it's so important to recognize in your relationship and maybe this is where a, a professional could come into helping you understand the dynamics is the difference between someone making an ignorant, unintended comment, you know, versus someone who's malicious or someone who's actually abusive verbally and or even physically. And, you know, a lot of the time when we're in the depths of an eating disorder, we can often be involved with people who diminish our value even more so. And then it kind of feeds into this like cycle of we destroy ourselves and then they destroy us. And then we just reinforce this belief that we aren't worth it and we devalued. Taking into consideration the idea that relationships are important to look at, the idea that different modalities of ways of coping with eating disorder behavior and thinking are important. We're looking at the spiritual aspect. Uh, we're looking at this idea of food freedom, you know, holistically and, and looking at the person as a whole, recognizing that there are all different elements of their life that can come into play uh, with healing this food and body relationship. So now if someone would come to you and say, you know, I want food freedom. I want what you have to offer. What is a gem or one kind of beautiful piece of advice that you could give to someone who's really struggling and and who just needs that extra push of encouragement to get their recovery and move through the challenges? Yeah, you know, I I like I said before, every every client's so different, what would be the most valuable thing to them. But I think my general thing that I like to hopefully convey to clients really early on, and even in a lot of, a lot of my messaging about my, my company is just that it's possible. Because I know when I was in the thick of it, I really, I mean, I have vivid memories of standing in the shower, just sobbing, thinking I will always be this way. I will always hate myself. I will hate my body. And this is the best it will ever be. And that was, I, that was not true. I was wrong. <laughs> and I kind of joke with clients. I'm like, sometimes it's good to be wrong. And honestly, I've never had a client that's gone through recovery and come out the other side who didn't at the beginning or along the way say, this feels impossible. I don't think I can get there. I, you know, I, I just, I, I'm not sure that this is possible for me, right? We always think we're the exception somehow, you know, in the worst way. <laughs> and so just conveying a sense of, I know it feels impossible, but, but how we feel while ma it matters does not necessarily reflect reality. And what feels impossible 
is not. And it may take a long time. It, it's uncomfortable. It's painful at times. And it takes a lot of work. But possible? Yes. Very possible. It's, it's actually such a beautiful thought. It's this idea of, and, and I guess this is reflected in the entire process of the eating disorder is, are you willing to put in this work and do these actions and take these steps and everything, despite the way that you feel? And I think the problem is we often get so stuck in our feelings being the dominant decider of what we do with our lives. And so if you can just take this advice that Cherie has, has given here, it's just like, it's possible. And the feeling you have, it's not a fact. It's the ability to move into recovery is completely possible despite the way that you feel. I really think that's just a really beautiful thought to leave the listeners with. Your question earlier about the vanity, because I got off on a tangent about stereotypes on eating disorders. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, 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 there is definitely the stereotype that this is about vanity and, oh, you just want to be thin. And, and really, it is, it is just so much deeper than that. And it, it, it's different for every client how this shows up. But I will say one of the things that is really common is this, I don't like myself. I I don't like who I am as a person, but if I can perfect the outside, maybe then I can feel good. Or maybe I had the thought when I was in my eating disorder, maybe if I look good on the outside, I'll trick people. <laughs> like they won't know what a terrible person I am, right? They'll be, they'll be, they'll be fooled, so to speak. Um, and so it really, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's more tangible. If you think about it, if you hate yourself and who you are as a person, that can feel really overwhelming of like, okay, how do I even fix that? How do I change that? Whereas our bodies feels like it's, it's a more tangible way of achieving feeling good about ourselves, right? We can go on the diet, we can do the exercise, you know, whatever the formulaic things that we think it doesn't always work as that simplistically, but that's what we think, right? And so a lot of it, again, is just that I'm, I'm trying to be perfect. And I'm trying to perfect the outside. I've also, I think there is that layer of protection of, like you said, where sometimes people feel like they want to change their bodies as a way of protecting themselves um, from being hurt in some way or um, protecting against having to be vulnerable with other people. I've seen people who are in their eating disorders because, and I say because, uh, not because this is the only reason, but some of it is related to trauma that they've had that is unresolved or, you know, other mental health issues, right? I've had clients who have been resistant to get well because they, they said, if I gain weight and I look healthier on the outside, people will not know how bad I'm hurting on the inside. It's a way of showing I'm not okay. I'm in pain. Something's wrong. Right. So it's not, it's not a simplistic, like it's this way or it's this way, you know, it's different for every client, but those are just some examples of how it is so much more profound than just, Oh, this is just about vanity. They just want to be thin and pretty. Yeah. I mean, while you're saying that it, it, it takes me back to that thought that I had earlier, which is this, you know, I was in recovery um, and I had weight rest restoration. I was comfortable in my body and everything. And I was in a relationship and I was heartbroken by this guy. And my thinking, and it was, it actually shocked me for about a week. I had this idea that 
well, you know, I was healthy, I was fine, and this person still rejected me. So maybe I just need to absolutely destroy my body and just like, like I said, gain as weight as much weight as possible, just eat as much food as I can, and just become like really, really, because then I'll have a valid reason for someone to not love me. They could like reject me because of the way my body looked and not because of who I was. So <laughs> it's amazing how like the psychology can get so twisted and we can start to go, this body is actually a tool for me to to protect something that I'm feeling really deeply inside, you know. Which is sad that that was like where your mind went for so many reasons, you know, and one of those is just, just even the fact that in our culture that has to be something that we can consider as, you know, an option of knowing that, well, if we're in a larger body, we're going to be viewed and treated a certain way, which is like a whole nother element that I also bring into the, the eating disorder and disordered eating treatment. It's just this kind of more like social justice aspect of how people in larger bodies are viewed and treated. And it's really, really wrong. And it's, there's so much history about how it's rooted in racism and it's, it is, it's an issue in ways that people don't always recognize, right? Because it's really, I've heard it termed like the last form of socially acceptable prejudice is against people in larger bodies, this weight bias that happens, which is really harmful to people. And I know that's like a topic probably for another, another discussion, but just, you know, bringing in that social justice aspect of, of how people in larger bodies are treated and viewed um, is that also is helpful for people sometimes because they really resonate with that. If that's, if they have kind of that social justice mindset and are like, yeah, that is wrong. You know, like they're, they're already fighting against racism and sexism and some of these other things. And so they really resonate with connecting with that. You're so right there. It's, and it's also one of those things where it's like, you know, it's not as obvious as having a different skin color, you know? So how do we like define it? We can't necessarily be like, hey, people in larger bodies now can vote or, you know, because it's not, it's not working on that level. It's, it's working on such a deeper level. So it's a very valid point that you've put out there. So, you know, before we wrap up, I'd love to know what is the highlight of your personal, your personal and or professional life been until this point? Yeah, I, you know, I think a few years ago when I really started learning about intuitive eating and I started learning about the health at every size, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's very closely related to what we were just talking about. Um, I think that was pivotal because it really changed some of the ways that I approached eating disorder recovery and approached work with clients. And it really challenged my own mindset and recognizing, um, you know, my own biases and my own privilege and being in a straight size body and not experiencing the world and that, um, and the ways that people in larger bodies experience the world and are treated. So I think that was really important for me because again, that really just shifted how I approached my work. Um, and, and I think a lot of practitioners who aren't into those kinds of philosophies unintentionally do harm to their clients by buying into, you know, that, like what we call fat phobia, that like fear of being fat. And it's like, we really want to help clients get past that in their recovery journey, because it's like, I, I am not interested in just helping people stop their eating disorder behaviors. You know, I did that for eight years and then I had a huge relapse 
which confused me at the time because I thought I was recovered. I wasn't. I wasn't engaging in behaviors, but I was still in diet culture. I was still not at peace with my body or food. I still was very afraid of my body changing, gaining weight, that kind of thing. And so I think as long as we have that fear, then we're not going to be able to have a peaceful relationship with food in our body, you know? And so I said, I think that was important shift for me in my work is just recognizing that recovery is about more than not engaging in eating disorder behaviors. It's really about doing that deeper healing. Uh, Like you said at the beginning, it's a relationship. It's a relationship with food and your body and you want it to be peaceful and be joyful. And that doesn't mean every day, but in general, like, you know, like I don't have a joyful, peaceful relationship with my husband every single day. You know, that's not real. That's not realistic, but, um, you can still have a healthy, positive relationship with food in your body as a general rule. And that's, that's, I think the bigger goal. I've really loved everything that we've spoken about today. And the thing that's really resonating and it kind of sums up the feeling of what you've expressed in this is that food freedom is about this idea of finding the balance, of finding the fact that there's no absolutes in our bodies and our foods and our everything. And when we can move away from these rules and these conditions and these thinking patterns that keep us stuck in cycles, we can actually move into a space that feels graceful it feels serene and it feels intuitive and and it just really you know I'm, I'm absolutely certain that the people out there that you're helping with your food freedom therapy your business um, and and just on a personal basis is really helping change people's lives and really appreciate people like you in the world so <laughs> without people like you yeah <laughs> without people like you we 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 would really be stuck in in um and a very, very serious and hard to navigate mental illness. Um, so with that, I'd love to ask you how we can get hold of you, where we can find you. Is there anything that you're working on at the moment? Um, just, yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the best ways to find me is on Instagram. My handle is at uh, food freedom therapist and I'm pretty active on there. I've been really busy lately, so I'm like behind on being on there and I've missed it, but um, that's one of the best ways to find me and kind of see what we're all about and get connected if, if, if needed. And yeah, we are always working on something. It seems like we did an anti-diet retreat recently, which was new for us. We have big ideas of like courses we want to create. Um, so, you know, who knows by the time somebody's listening to this, what we'll have available. One thing that we do have up that a lot of people seem to be interested in is let's, I call it the intuitive eating jumpstart guide. So you can go to the website, which is right now foodfreedomtherapy.com. We are actually in the process of changing our business name now that like I have a dietitian and all these other people on staff. So we're changing our name to nourished soul center for healing. So it'll still redirect if they go to the food freedom therapy. Um, but that being said, there's a, a PDF that you can download that is, basically just like a quick overview of what intuitive eating is and how to get started and certainly not a substitute for working with somebody one-on-one, but it can kind of give you an idea of what intuitive eating is all about, what the principles are, and maybe give you an idea of where to start and some additional resources for help. Thank you so, so much for joining me today and I will definitely be in touch with you in the future. Thanks. That sounds great. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. If you have liked it, share it with people who you think might benefit from listening to it as well. Don't forget to go to my Instagram page called at Curious About Recovery to find out about upcoming episodes or to browse the episodes of the past. You can also follow my page called at Kirsten Honeyball where you can get inspiration for your eating disorder recovery.